Let's pray together before we read and hear the word preached. Father, we do pray that even now that you would quiet our hearts, that you would quiet our minds, that they would be absent of all thought or absent of all desire, rather that they might have singularity of thought and desire. We might desire and long and think upon you this evening. We would be quiet and still within so that we can hear as you speak to us. Thankful that this word is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and we pray that this evening it would pierce to the very depths of our souls. For your glory and your praise. Speak to us, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Pray for me here. Here we go. Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Emri, built. The sons of Hasenai built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joada, the son of Paseah, Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seats of the governors of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harheah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to, them, next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them... Raphaeah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumph, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hash-A-Beniah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath-Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Oven. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. 
He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Hinnadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Joshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Ben-Yui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pedadiah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shalemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I love this chapter of Nehemiah. Uh, not because of all the crazy names. I thought about just asking one of you at random to come up here and read the text this evening. I'll tell you the trick of it. It's just to read with confidence. No one has a clue whether you're doing it right or not. So you just go. Is what you do when you run into all of these names. But the reason I love this chapter is not because it is overly scintillating to read all of these crazy names. Uh, but because of what's happening here. You know, this Nehemiah chapter 3, it is one of the easiest uh, and quickest chapters to read in the Bible when you read it silently because you just skip over all the names. Well, it's one of the longest to read when you read it publicly because you have to read all of these names. But all of these names matter. 
Every single one of them. And there are a lot of them. And what excites me about this chapter of Scripture is that it demonstrates what the people of God can do when they are united together in the work of God for the glory of God. And that's what this chapter proclaims to us. And oh, what monumental things the people of God can do when they are united together in the work of God for the glory of God. Let's look first at this project that is set before them here in Nehemiah chapter 3. It's a monumental task. Uh, There is a little bit of debate about how far the walls, how long they actually are, if you were to put them all out in a continuous line, anywhere from a mile and a half to two and a half miles of walls needed to be rebuilt around the city of Jerusalem. This is an absolutely overwhelming task, an overwhelming project. This is a a project that could have discouraged the most stout of heart. And yet, that's the project that's before them. And Nehemiah tackles it in a textbook kind of way. He leads well in that he organizes all the people here in Jerusalem into smaller groups. and, And he organizes the project into doable portions. And those doable portions, he then, port- he then doles out to these different groups of people. He uh, gives them just enough, just enough so that it's hard work, but not too much that it would discourage them. He takes the larger task and he makes it smaller. You know, it's true of almost anything worth doing that it will require effort and expenditure. And the bigger the task, the more easy it is to be dis- become discouraged in it. It's often overwhelming to think about the God-given tasks that He has set before you and I. That we're to raise our children in the Lord. That we're to evangelize our co-workers. That we are to kill sin in our flesh. There's such monumental tasks, projects, things like that. It can feel absolutely overwhelming and, and discouraged. We can learn a lot about how to tackle them from Nehemiah here. He breaks down the project into smaller portions, and he takes one at a time. So instead of thinking about, oh, we are to raise our children in the Lord and be faithful in this all of these years and we're to shape them, and no, you just seek to be faithful today. I'm going to evangelize all my co-workers. You aim at that one. You work on him or you work on her. I'm supposed to kill all of this sin in my life. Well, start with that one. Labor hard to kill that one. Start small and work large. Nehemiah does that. He breaks the project into different sections of the wall. The chapter begins with what would be the northeast corner of the wall. There at the sheep gate. And there at the sheep gate, we're told that the priests took that section of the gate and they rebuilt that gate and they rebuilt the wall and the, the towers around that because they had a personal interest in the sheep gate. That's where the sacrifices were led through so that these animals that would later be sacrificed by them. So we're told that the priest took that section to the Tower of the Hundred and to the Tower of Hananel. And then he moves around the northern wall and he tells that 
tells us that Hassaniah built the fish gate and Merimoth repaired next to him and we go on around to the northwestern corner of the wall and then he'll swing down along the western side of the wall down to the old gate and, and keeps going down and then we'll circle around the bottom and up the eastern side of the wall and end up back at that northeastern corner. That's what he's doing as he just maps it out. Who's taking each section all the way around this one and a half to two and a half mile long wall? Each group, each group of people, each segment of the gathered workers just doing the tasks as before. And all doing that work. And, and the project's tackled, it's completed. As we think about this project, we need to look at these people that are completing it. Let's think about the people. This project is large, but the people are many, and they're not only many, but they are various, various types of people that are involved in this project. The chapter begins with the high priest, Eliashib, and his fellow priests entering the work. They begin, as we said, the work there at the Sheep Gate, and then they go west from there on that northern wall, and they work there to build that wall. So here we have the elites, the elites of the Jewish culture laboring on the wall. These are priests. Levites, and the high priest himself that's using his hands to rebuild the wall. This would have been absolutely abnormal practice for the priests. And yet, they pitch right in. They labor right alongside of everyone else. There's unity here. But it wasn't just the priests. We have all kinds of people engaging in this work. We have Shalom in verse 12 who was a magistrate ruling over half of Jerusalem. We see other magistrates here in the text, but there's not just these magistrates. We also have, we're told there in verse 12, Sholem's daughters engaging in the work. And this would have been absolutely unheard of. Women doing this at this time. The project was before them, and all the people of God were entering into it together. We have 42 different types of people mentioned in this chapter. Levites and magistrates and women and men and goldsmiths and other artisans and regular people who lived in Jerusalem and those who lived outside of Jerusalem in places like Jericho and Tekoa and Gibeon and Mizpah all could have given an excuse for why they shouldn't have been involved in this work. Daughters could have said, well, that's, that's not what women do. That's men's manual labor. And the Levites and the high priests and the artisans could have said that this was a work that was below them. The merchants could have said, along with the rulers, that this is what common men do. We aren't common men. And the common men could have argued, look, we only do this for pay. This is what we get paid to do. But none of them made any excuses. They all threw in all the people unified together. And the huge project was completed. You know, all big works of God begin small. With simply the ordinary people of God working for the glory of God. Many hands make for light work. Many hands accomplish much work. That's how revivals begin. That's how reformations begin. That's how churches are planted. That's how mission works are begun. That's how cities are impacted. That's how states are impacted. That's how the world is impacted. 
glory of God. Just ordinary people of God working for the glory of God. Every, minister, every member ministering according to our ability is the calling of the church. Every member. And we can easily fall into that trap of thinking that ministry is the job of the professionals. That this is what the pastors do. And this is what the church administrators do. And this is what those who are in ministry do. Paul makes it very clear in places like Ephesians 4 and and the sister passages like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 that we have all been gifted. We've all been gifted to do the work of the ministry. Every single one of us, what the Reformers called the priesthood of all believers, that we are all ministers of the gospel, every single one of us. In fact, Paul will say there in Ephesians 4, he will say that pastors and teachers have been given for this purpose, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's their job, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We're all to engage in the work, and when we do, mighty things are accomplished. But as James Montgomery Boyce said, he said, it is said that today churches resemble more than anything else a football game played in a large stadium. There are 80,000 spectators in the stands who badly need some exercise, and there are 22 men on the field who badly need rest. The body of Christ is to be a united people, all laboring together. Some may not have the gifts of others. Some may not have the talents of others. Some may not have the capacity of others. Some may do more work than others. Not all are going to have visible gifts. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians where he's saying, look, we all can't be an eye, we all can't be an ear. But all have gifts. And all are to do their best to labor for the sake of the kingdom. You have a part to play. And so do I. We uh, started the leadership training class this week. Uh, 15 or so people here at the church that are looking to grow in leadership and grow in the use of their gifts in the church. And I always try and read a little portion of one of my favorite books to them. And so I said, you know, I, I'm just going to grab one of my favorite authors, John Newton, grab his letters. And I just flipped it open to a page. I said, ah, it doesn't matter. Any, any page works in Newton. And so flipped open the book and flipped open to this page. And this is what I read to them, and this is a good reminder. Uh, In the letter that he's writing, Newton is writing to another pastor. And as he's writing to this pastor, you remember at this time of Newton's living, George Whitfield is the great preacher of the age. And George Whitfield was really, at least in the American colonies, and he was the first celebrity ever in America. And he was renowned throughout England and throughout Western Europe and throughout America. When people heard that George Whitfield was on his way to the American colonies to preach, people literally camped out on the docks in South Carolina waiting for him for days and weeks to arrive because he was coming. And the Lord used him mightily. And so John Newton is writing this other ordinary pastor 
And he says this. One man, like Whitfield, is raised up to preach the gospel with success through a considerable part of the earth. Another is called to the humbler service of sweeping the streets or cleaning this great minister's shoes. And then he said this. I'm inclined to think that if you and I were to travel in search of the best Christian in the land, or were qualified to distinguish who deserved the title, it is more than two to one. We should not find the per person in a pulpit or in any public office of life. Perhaps some old woman at her wheel, I mean her spinning wheel, or some bedridden person hid from the knowledge of the world in a mud-walled cottage would strike our attention more than any of the doctors or reverends with whom we are acquainted. Let us not measure men, much less ourselves, by gifts or service. One grain of grace is worth abundance of gifts. To be self-abased, to be filled with the spirit of love and peace and gentleness, to be dead to the world, to have the heart deeply affected with a sense of the glory and grace of Jesus, to have our will bowed to the will of God, these are great things more valuable. If compared in the balance of the sanctuary, then to be an instrument of converting provinces or a nation. love that line, let us not measure men, much less ourselves, by gifts or services. Amen. Let us just labor according to the strength and according to the grace that the Lord has given us. And be faithful in what He has called us to do. The project's there, the people are gathered, and they do the work of God. We have work to do in Ephesians 1, that chapter that we often celebrate as it speaks about election and predestination. And there Paul makes the point, he says that you and I were predestined unto the praise of His glorious grace. You think about Ephesians 2, the chapter right after that, those famous verses 8 through 10. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's the gospel. Then he continues in verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Been saved unto works. Saved to work unto the glory of God. And we each have our work to do. That was true for each of these Jews. They each did the work that was before them. They undertook it and they were united in it. And yet not all joined the effort. There are always those who would rather play the critic and think that they are above others. There are always those. Because it's easy to sit and critique. We see that in this passage, not all will support or engage in the local work of God. Verse 5, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Isn't that one of the greatest short ways of giving a dig to someone of all time? That they wouldn't stoop to serve the Lord. 
thought of themselves as so high and so mighty, they wouldn't even stoop to serve the Lord. Think of all these people who had a ready excuse. Nehemiah himself had a great position. He had a great excuse. He was appointed as the cupbearer of the Lord. He was in the very presence of this, this Lord of all of Persia, the king of all of Persia. And he could have said, look, the Lord providentially put me here to serve. But he didn't. He, he saw the task that was needed, and that meant giving up time and energy, position, giving up his own comfortability. He could have left the walls as they were, but he and others rightfully had a holy discontentment. There's a holy contentment that you and I are to have. We're to have a holy contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ and what it is that he has given to us and who it is that he has made us to be and what it is that he has called us to and what station of life he has put us in. There is a holy contentment we are to have. But there is also to be with that a holy discontentment where you and I desire to see the church continue to go forward and Christ to be exalted more and more. And we're not content to see it where it is. Nehemiah had this kind of holy discontentment. So did the rest of these Jews, and so they refused to sit still. They got up and they engaged. They did the work. It's not enough to sit and watch and critique while others are engaged. Shame on those Teobites, those uh, Tekoite nobles. That's easy to critique and not do. I love uh, that famous story of D.L. Moody, where D.L. Moody, you know, would preach open-air evangelistic messages, and people would pack out. He was, in many ways, following in the footsteps of George Whitfield, and, and he was criticized often for that, for his manner of ministry, and there was a woman that came up to him one day, and she said, Mr. Moody, she said, I am very much opposed to the way that you do evangelism. And he said to the woman, he said, well, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. I know a pastor who wished uh, he had had the gumption to say to a person who came to him critiquing his preaching and yet was an individual who did not engage in the work of the church, she simply would walk through the door and she would take a seat and she would play the critic sometimes on her way out and let her know what she didn't like about his sermon, but she would always just head straight out the door. And I remember him saying that he wished he had had the gumption on the last day when she was walking out because she just came as a consumer, just to consume and then critique. And she was walking out and she said to him, I don't like your style of preaching. He said, I wish I'd had the gumption to say, well, I don't like your style of church. It's easy to not engage. We each have a part to play. And it usually begins with humility and then engagement follows. Being willing to stoop for the glory of the Lord. These people, they finished this monumental project because each of them did their part in unity. My friends, we cannot overestimate. We cannot overestimate the impact a motivated, united people of God can have when they labor for the glory of God together. 
We've seen it time and time again in the history of the church. How that we could maintain that and pursue that. It's when the church is at its very best. When it's truly impacting the world that it's in. Lastly, we need to take a look again at Nehemiah's leadership here. It is also true that projects like this, though you may have the people of God assembled together, it is seldom accomplished without godly and faithful leadership. Nehemiah here, there are three things I want to point out about his leadership in this chapter. First, you'll notice that Nehemiah, he delegates the work. He gives responsibility to others. This is always a mark of good leadership. You remember Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, coming to him and saying, Moses, you can't do all of this. You can't carry this burden yourself. You must delegate this out to others. You can't do it all. That's the bad news. But the good news is that you weren't called to do it all. When you and I think that we can do it all or we attempt to do it all, we are committing a greater error than poor leadership. We're eaten up with pride. None of us, none of us is indispensable. None of us can do everything. We can't be omnipresent. And we are not omnipotent. So it's not an attempt to carry that self-imposed burden of acting like. So we delegate. So Nehemiah does here. He delegates. The second, Nehemiah understood the importance of personal interest in a project. We see it time and again in the text. Verse 10. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Haramoth, repaired opposite his house. Verse 23. After them, Benjamin and Hasub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. We see it in verse 28. We see it in verse 29. People will work hard when they have a personal interest in the project that's before them. And if you live by that section of the wall, you're going to make sure that that part of the wall is strong. Because it means defense for your family. It means protection for your family. It means security for your family. And one of the hallmarks of good leadership is helping people to see why this matters for them and then employing their personal interest to accomplish the task. And Nehemiah does it. But most importantly, notice this about Nehemiah's leadership. It is not self-aggrandizing. He gives us a detailed list here of all of these absolutely impossible names. Name after name after name. Person after person after person. He details what each of them has done for the historical record. He records it in the living word of God so that it is there for all of eternity. And yet there's a name missing. There's one name that's not there. His name. He doesn't mention himself. He doesn't say what he did. And no doubt he orchestrated the project. It was his vision. No doubt it required him to spend long days and, and restless nights. 
No doubt he was the one that was figuring out how to get the materials in and how to make sure everybody had the right materials. He was the one that was working out conflicts between different people on different sections of the wall. And yet he never mentions himself. This was no small project, and it would have had no small amount of complications. I think out of all of these people listed in this chapter, Nehemiah probably had the most invested. He probably worked the hardest. And yet he takes no credit. He gives it to the others. For all of eternity. Good leadership points to others when there's success. It takes responsibility when there's failure. And Nehemiah, he exemplifies this. He's not like Nebuchadnezzar, as Boyce pointed out, who conquered Jerusalem 140 years earlier. And Nebuchadnezzar would look out over the city of Babylon, this great city that he has built, and he will stand at his palace window and he will say, as is recorded in Daniel 4, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Give me all the credit. Give me all the due. Give me all the glory. And what does God do? He humbles Nebuchadnezzar. He makes him like a beast of the field who eats grass on his knees and drools at his mouth. He strips it all away from him. But you look at Nehemiah in chapter 6, verse 16, and what he says. He gives all the glory to God. He says, this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Isn't this the great secret of the church's success? Whatever we do, whatever, wherever there is success, it is because we have the help of our God. It is He who has done it. And He just chooses to use us as instruments in this world. You know, in Christ, when He is speaking to the disciples, He says, I must go away so that I can send to you the Helper. And He sends the Spirit to indwell His people so that there is unity among the people and so that there is a helper that assists us in the work that God has called us to do. But the greatest of all helps. What absolutely monumental things the people of God can do when they're united together in the work of God for the glory of God. And we have the greatest of all aids, the very help of God and the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So let us dream big as the people of God. Let us labor hard for the glory of God. And to do that together. You know, what monumental things the people of God can do when they're united together in the work of God for the glory of God. I pray we would see more of that in our generation. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we do exalt you this evening. We 
thankful that you are not a God who sits on high, distant from this world, but that you are active in it. You are accomplishing your purposes. And though you need not use us to accomplish your purposes, you choose to do so. Ah, what high privilege you have given to us. And equally, what a great responsibility you have given to us. May we be those who faithful hard and well together. For you've united us together to labor together. We pray that we would accomplish great things for the sake of your name and for your glory. Oh, we would see mighty works done in our generation as Nehemiah saw in his generation. That you might receive all the praise. We pray this in the strong name of Christ our Lord and our Savior. Amen.